Welcome to Fashion Your Seatbelt, your first class seat to one-on-one conversations with the fashion industry's top voices. I'm Jessica Michaud, and I created this podcast to share the joy I have in getting to know all the amazing people who bring this creative, inventive, and extraordinary business to life. You'll get to hear the cadence of their voices, the sound of their laughter, and feel firsthand how passionate they are about what they do. But before we get this show on the road, I want to say a quick thank you to GPS Radar for making this episode possible. GPS Radar is the members-only website where leading fashion brands and media connect. Also, I just want to remind you to leave a review. Stars are really trending right now, and it helps other very stylish listeners like yourself find the show. Now buckle up, and let's get started. There are some people who work in fashion that you could just listen to for hours. Their knowledge about the industry, both institutional and anecdotal, make them treasured sources of information and education. And if there's one person working in fashion today who does this pretty much better than anyone else, it's Stephen Jones. Stephen has been a milliner for 40 years, and during that time, he has become the go-to hat maker for, well, just about everyone. From fashion designers and celebrities to rock stars and royalty, Stephen has created the finishing touches for thousands and thousands of outfits. Clients include everyone from Boy George, Mick Jagger, and Madonna, to Beyonce, Victoria Beckham, and Rihanna. Not to mention all of the royals who have donned one of his designs, including Diana, Princess of Wales. But it is via his numerous collaboration with fashion designers that Stephen has been able to let his creative imagination really run wild. The hats he crafted for John Galliano during his Dior years, the headgear he crafted for Tom Brown, and the headpieces he concocted for Ray Caracubo to complete her Come des Garçons collections are all the stuff of legends. They are often gravity-defying designs and objets d'art in their own right. Stephen's talents have been recognized by Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth II. She bestowed on him an OBE for his services to fashion, and his work has been the subject of fashion exhibitions around the world. But as striking as all his hats are, Stephen himself has a very distinctive look. Yes, he is always dapperly dressed, but it's his bald head, which he started shaving back in the 1980s, that makes him instantly recognizable in a fashion crowd. Stephen decided to make this dramatic choice when he discovered that his head was the perfect stock size, which instantly made it easy to test out all of his hats on himself. Getting to chat with Stephen about his life's work as a milliner was such a treat for me, and I know you will be tipping your hat to him too by the end of this podcast. First of all, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. So am I right in thinking that this is your 40th anniversary for your company? It's 40th anniversary since making my first hat. Ah. I made it exactly 40 years ago. Mm. And uh, in my first year at St. Martin's, in, just at the end of my first year at St. Martin's, and it was a hat to get into the millinery department. Really? What made you decide that that was your calling? When was your aha moment that this is what you want to do with your life? I, I've never had a aha moment. I've never had that eureka moment. Um, it's just all happened along the way. But I was a tailoring intern at a couture house in London um, because I'd been sent there by my college. I didn't know how to sew and my work, I was going to fail the first year. And my tailoring tutor at the college told me to go to the couture house. And I I went there as a tailor's apprentice. Um, But the tailor I was working for was a bit grumpy. Um, And next to the tailoring workroom was a millinery workroom. And there was a swing door on the door of the workroom. And every time the door swung open, they were having a good time. They were laughing, they were cracking jokes, and they were all women of a certain age. I mean, they, I mean, they were quite old. I mean, they must have been at least 35. 
<laughs> but you know, to an eighteen-year-old, somebody who's twenty is ancient. <laughs> <laughs> you know, somehow, when you're, you know, on the other on the other side, it just seems it feels really just young. visions of youth. <laughs> but they they seem to have a very good attitude to life, and I transferred literally because of that attitude to life, not because of what they were doing. I mean, I knew it was still sewing. Mm-hmm. I knew that it was making a, an, an object. Mm-hmm. I knew that it was fashion, mm-hmm. but it was just their attitude which was great. So I went to the um, head of the the house and asked for a transfer and he called the head of the workroom up and and she said "Uh, well have you made a hat and I said no and she said well how can I possibly take you on if you haven't made one and she said well it's Friday afternoon show me one on Monday morning so I went back to my parents house cut up an old blouse of my sister's got a cereal packet and some glue and, and an old plastic flower that my mother had and made a little pillbox and to my complete amazement, on the Monday morning, I showed it to them. And they thought it was terribly modern because it had a plastic flower on it. Mm. I didn't even realize it was supposed to have a silk flower on it. And that's how I got into millinery. What I, what I particularly love about what you do um, is that you have seemed to make... You, oh, there's there's a, a playfulness about everything you do. Um, and I feel like that's both intentional and that's also just kind of who you are. Do, do you think that that's right? Yes. And I think it's interesting that you say about it's who I am, because I think for any designer, any designer, the the thing that makes their design work is the design has to be who they are. I mean, yes, it can be about Egyptian. Yes, it can be about 14th century. But actually, their most interesting work is the thing which is most personal to them. When I've been working with different designers throughout my career, that's the thing which is always most fascinating when it's really them. So in in a funny way, yes, when I'm making a hat, I, I feel as though I'm the conduit in a funny way um, for the making of the hat. Um, and I do think that, you know, hats should be fun and optimistic. And that's one of the great things that fashion can be. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to be about paying your rent. It can be about having a good time. I agree. Your hats definitely have a good time. I'm sure they've been to a lot of places where people have had a good time. <laughs> um, one of the other things I love about um, hat making or millinery is is this idea that it's incredibly liberating, that it you don't have to wash it, you don't have to anything like that, and yet it's also very confined to the head. So there, there's, there's, it's expansive and also really contained. Can you talk a little bit about that dichotomy and how you balance those two things? Well, certainly... It gives a sense of freedom and it's a sense of expression. And because it's in a hat, I mean, you could say, well, that's what clothes do. But if you put that sort of information in clothing, it can often look like costume. The fact that a hat is easily removable somehow gives it a certain sort of nonchalance. But people use hats in lots of different ways. I mean, for example, Anna Piaggi, who is a great friend and client of mine, said to me, I said to her, why do you like hats? And she said, well, without hats, I feel as though my head's going to spin off somewhere strange. And I need it to sort of focus my thoughts and focus my energy. Hmm. So she actually believed that there was some sort of physical thing which helped her focus. And so in the same way that people might have magic shoes or lucky pants or whatever, I think people's also imbue the things that they put on their head Mm -hmm. with a mystical and practical power too, which is their freedom and their protection. Okay. Um, I think you've worked with 
just about every single living designer. Um, <laughs> I haven't. Uh, well, okay, so great view of the workout long time. Uh, well, I mean, okay, so t- let's talk about bucket list then. Is there anybody that you uh, that's designing today that you would love to create collaborate with? I mean, there's lots of people designing today. It's funny. I mean, there's people in my past who I would have loved to collaborate with, um, yeah. but. It never happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but you did that sort of, and we'll come back to that question because you nicely dodged it. But the, the your most recent collection for the fall winter 2017 was all, there's an amazing collection of hats inspired by designers from the past, which I thought was an amazing way yeah. to kind of work with them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the idea of what would I make for Cristobal Balenciaga? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I never met, obviously never met him, but I worked with, Emmanuel Ungaro, who was one of his assistants, and he told me about how Balenciaga designed hats and how he believed the function of hats would be, and, and to be part of that was amazing. So I, I tried to put that into to one of the hats. Mm-hmm. But so Young did, and a couple of other things. I mean, I, I remember once um, somebody, I, I was backstage at a Christian Lacroix show mm. many, many years ago, and somebody said to Christian, oh, you know, Stephen, you should do hats for Christian. And Christian said, no, 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 never. He said, hats are the one part I really enjoy. <laughs> the rest of it's a nightmare. <laughs> uh, and I remember what, uh, and the other person I wish I'd made hats for was Isimiyaki when, mm. when he was working there, because I really believe that um, he was and still is one of the most fascinating designers mm-hmm. in, in a funny way young generation doesn't know what he's done apart from those great handbags which he's selling thousands of and pleats please mm-hmm. but he's got an extraordinary body of work but yeah I and mean, it's great to work with every young crop of designers who come along mm-hmm. i'm 60 years old so i have a very particular point of view and when i'm talking to a designer who's 25 you know they're just starting mm-hmm. but what you can't do is think well i've done it all before and seen it all before because their point of view is totally different. Mm-hmm. And your antennae have got to be really awake. And, and of course, they might say, oh, my God, you work with Thierry Mugler in 1985. You work with Comte de Garcia and Jean-Paul Gaultier. Yeah, that must have been incredible. Um, so they love to hear that. Mm-hmm. But I also love to hear, say, for example, working with Ryan Lowe in mm-hmm. London. You know, he's 23 or something. And and from Hong Kong. I, I so, 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 so how is it? Um, growing up between London and Hong Kong and China and relationship of Hong Kong to China and design on what are Chinese people into and mm-hmm. do they like luxury labels or what do they think they're... I mean, all that is completely fascinating. And then you make hats out of that conversation. And wow. that's the interesting part, that you have to have the conversation first and then you can make hats out. Okay, so then let's get down to the nitty-gritty. How do you make hats out of that conversation? What is your process like? So you have the conversation. The conversation is to get to know them rapidly. You know, you don't have to be best friends. In a funny way, it's better not to be best friends. There has to be a little bit of a distance. Hmm. It's quite healthy. How come that's healthy? Because you don't want to be in each other's pockets too much. Hmm. You need to respect but not hurt each other. And you know that... If you're very close to somebody, it's quite easy to hurt them too. Otherwise, that relationship in a way, doesn't mean anything. But it is a professional relationship. So you have to be very aware of how close you're getting and how far away you are. Mm-hmm. You have the conversation and you talk about hats and maybe their collection and 
try and understand what their vision of hats is. Is it because they think their collection is very simple mm-hmm. and needs more decoration, but they don't want to put it on the clothes? Is it that they believe that, you know, the design, uh, for, one, for example, once I asked John Galliano, I said, John, why are you so interested in hats? And he said, well, that's a funny question coming from you. He said, but, you know, why would any designer stop at the neck? Mm-hmm. It's actually above the neck, at the end of the sleeve, at the hem of the skirt, where design becomes really interesting because that's where the body really mixes with the clothes. So he said, that's why I'm so fascinated in, in hair, makeup, collar, hat, and because it's all part of the whole. Mm-hmm. And people want hats for many different reasons to, to, to make a collection stand out. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's lots of collections and not so many have hats. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you start to find out about that and then you find out what they like and what they don't like. And they might say, well, actually, this is a hat I bought on holiday. And could I have 25 like that? And How do you react to that? Well, so, sometimes that's okay because I've got to pay the rent too. <laughs> but sometimes, often I would say, but that doesn't really correspond with the thinking in your collection. So you get, the, you get somebody who gives you the hat they saw on vacation and they say, do this. And you say you have to pay the rent and then... So, yes, I mean, I do have to pay the rent. So sometimes I would do that. But often I would say, well, it's not really expressing the same thing as your clothing is expressing because you're talking about emancipation of women Mm -hmm. or elegance or multiculturalism Mm -hmm. or you're talking about going out to a fantastic party on a Friday night and meeting somebody and having the wildest time of your life. So that the hat that we create has actually got to follow that mentality, not the hat that you necessarily are thinking of. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you're collaborating with somebody, it is a question of building something together. And that's what collaboration is about. Um, Where do you come in in the process? Are you there from the beginning before the collection is made? Is it already pretty much fully formed? When do you arrive on scene? Sometimes at the very beginning, but more often than not about halfway through. Because, and it's better for me to arrive halfway through because, of course, ideas change. So two months before the collection, everybody might be saying, Tudor, mm-hmm. 15th century English, you know, everything's brown and white and Elizabethan ruffles. Two months later, it might be space age. And that's how fashion changes and the processes of designer working things do change because of the concept of the collection and because of just making the clothes by and and sometimes the clothes need, even if you are showing Tudor clothes, I don't know why I got on Tudor clothes, by the way, even if you are showing Tudor clothes, maybe it needs something space age in it. Yeah, to give yeah, it a kick. To yeah. give it a kick. So it works differently every time. You are aware of that if it becomes a formula, it's probably not the right thing. Um, so I come about halfway through the creation, probably about six weeks before the collections Mm -hmm. Um, and then I would but I will know that things may change quite considerably Mm -hmm. so I'll have a brief and I'll do some sketches and meet up a couple of weeks later and then make some prototypes just the same way as making clothes and Mm -hmm. often we'll try the prototype hats on with the prototype clothes and see how the whole thing works together Mm -hmm. um the simple version of it would be the designer would say, yes, I love that. We'd start off with 20 sketches, then we'd pick from that 10 prototypes, and then the designer would say, yes, I like those three prototypes, but can we expand it to five? Then I would go away and make those five, but not like one of them, but come up with something else in the meantime. 
and you'd sort of work it together and then they'd say yes we'd have another trying on they're picking the clothes and say yes I'll have five in burgundy and three in black but quite often it doesn't work like that <laughs> it never seems to work out exactly it, it, like it, it never works out it work, never works like that it's there's always um you know the last minute thing the mm-hmm. last minute change um we try it on um it doesn't quite work so what I always do is try it on back to front <laughs> upside down let's see if it works like that you know part of the when I come in later on that often so often the design studio has been working very solidly on it there's lots of pressures you've got the sales through of the previous season which is going through what's working what's not working mm-hmm. when I go in I have to bring a good mood and good times with me because mm-hmm. that's also part of my job and I know for example hair and makeup people when they're going on fashion shoots that's also something they bring with them too and but I gotta say you are one of the most happy-go-lucky upbeat person I've persons I've ever met in fashion and I really actually want to know where does that come from you know you're 40 years into this and you are still as chipper as day one where where does this positivity come from um when I meet you obviously oh you're such a charmer <laughs> Well, it, it, it's not. It's not all roses. Mm-hmm. Believe me, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I came to hats in a funny way quite late, and I never w- wanted to change the world with a hat. You know, they are just things you put on your head. They're not the meaning of life, <laughs> but they can help you along. And and I feel uniquely privileged to be able to do that. And I never can become blasé about it. And there's ups and downs. You know, I have. Some great supporters who've worked with me, both in my team mm-hmm. in London and clients around the world and stores around the world and private clients around the world mm-hmm. who I've worked with for a very long time. So, Well, I guess we have to, that is kind of the elephant in the room. I'm so dying to ask you, what is, there are three designers that I'm very curious to know about. What is it like working with John Galliano, of course, because some of his creations would not have come to life without your headpieces. So mm-hmm. what what was it like working with John? And I'll, I'll give you a heads up. At John and then, of course, Ray Karakubo. And then finally, Tom Brown. Those are the three that, that again, without your intervention. And then your intervention, of course, and others, it's a subtle and it's a no- different play. But those are some showmanship kind of pieces that you're creating for them. What is your back and forth between those three designers? Well, I think Ray is the person who I worked with earliest on in my career, and mm-hmm. that was 1985. And we met in Anchorage Airport in the duty free. Okay. <laughs> bizarre way of meeting. And I worked for, made hats for her collections then very early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was a big break. And then about 12 years ago, started to work, 15 years ago, started to work with her again. And we worked together on so many different things. You know, there's Ray, when she's showing a collection, that's a, a tiny part of her business because she considers, for example, Dover Street Market to be as important part of her collections as mainline Comme de Garçon or on plus. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but for example, if it's that, or if I'm working on something to do with the collections or Dover Street Market or fragrances that they produce, um, never a day goes past without me thinking about Comme de Garçon. So know. what is a conversation with Ray? What is a conversation with Ray like? Is there a conversation with Ray? That's <laughs> a good question. <laughs> um, it's always different. And it's normally quite surprising. I mean, sometimes she will be very specific. 
she will say, I'm thinking of a straw hat and I will make a straw hat and I will take the hats out. I'll make 10 and I will take the hats out the day before the show and she will see them and she'll try them on and she will do the styling, coordinate them. Mm -hmm. And I sort of stand on the sidelines and watch and see. And and I don't necessarily agree with her what she's doing, Mm -hmm. but I have faith in her that she's going to take my eye to something that I didn't know about before and I didn't understand and a vision of beauty and a vision of ugliness that really I don't know anything about. Mm. And that's the fantastic thing for all of us Mm -hmm. who are viewing or working with Ray. um, And I think she would see all of us as, and everybody in the fashion world, maybe her clients as well, as contributing to this sort of flow that she has. So how does the brief arrive? So sometimes it makes me straw hats. Sometimes there's a brief which says, there is no brief. Um, (laughs) Nothing uh, worse than that. (laughs) No, I received that as a fax note once. There is no brief? And what did you come up with? With is no brief, what did you come, what was your answer to that? Um, Hats made out of stranger, I thought, it needs to be made out of strange objects. So I made hats out of makeup sponges and um, little cotton remover pads. And I just thought, well, I can't do anything that use any material that had been used before. Hmm. So I took actually used everything for taking things away nice. as opposed to putting things on. So the, there was that. And, you know, so, so many different things. Often it goes through Adrian, um, mm-hmm. Joffe, her husband who lives here in Paris, mm-hmm. um, and he will be sort of the go-between or the communicator. And, and sometimes she will send me a sketch. Oh, and, wow. And, and Ray sketches and will say, black ribbon here, please, and the edge of the brim done like that, and very precise. But there is no real formula. And, and, and she has taken, sometimes she said, I don't want you to make hats specially for me. I want to take hats from your archive. So okay. we just showed archive hats. Another season, she said she took them and she turned them all inside out. And <laughs> you have to be on. humble. You have to yeah. be very humble with Ray. Uh, and one one time, um, I took the hats out of the boxes the day before the show, and she said, "I don't like them, mm-hmm. but this one has got possibilities. Can I have ten more like this tomorrow morning, please?" Oh my God! And and what do you do in a case like that? You plead very carefully with your workroom back in London and get <laughs> get everybody to work overnight and bring them over on the first train in the morning. Oh, my goodness. Um, we do it mm-hmm. for her mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, that's Because it's why. Ray. Yeah. Because it's Ray. And, mm-hmm. and people do. And, and you're very aware that when you're working with her that it's a real privilege to be get into her brain and be part of her world. Mm-hmm. I think that's the same for all of us. You know, when you're there and you're thinking, oh, my God, you could be doing whatever you want to, but you choose to do that. And it's quite difficult to do that. Mm-hmm. And it makes us uncomfortable to do that. But you've actually got the guts to do it. And you are a 70-year-old woman yeah. and you're still doing it. And I think she has a huge amount of respect from the fashion industry because of that. I, I absolutely agree. Um Going, moving on to John Galliano, I know you've been quoted as saying that one of the hardest pieces or the hardest collection you ever had to do when we was, um, I think it was in 2006, it was the whole armor uh, collection with the amazing headgear. I remember yeah. the boat. I, am I thinking right? The boat with all out of beads or, yeah, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I don't think over the top is a word that John ever understood. There was nothing too audacious no, and out no. there. But I'm curious. Bigger, higher, wider. <laughs> More. So what was that expansive universe like? To, how is it the process with him? 
Well, John always tells a story through hats, mm. through his clothes too, but particularly through his hats, which somehow sort of encapsulate whatever he's trying to do and communicate that season. Hats for him are sort of a talisman or a sign, almost, almost more than the clothes. That, that just somehow that sort of, it really encapsulates what he's doing. And I worked, I mean, I knew him when he lived in London. It says in the Colin McDowell book that he asked me to make hats for him for one of his first collections. And I said, not on your life, sweetheart. Um, and this was on a dance floor, but I have no memory of that occasion whatsoever. <laughs> but I think that came from, I don't know whether it came from John McCollum, but we started, we certainly the lady who taught me how to make hats started to make hats for him at the very beginning. And, and we knew each other very well. And Sibylle de Saint-Fal, Nikki de Saint-Fal's niece, mm-hmm. um, who was my first assistant, became John's first assistant. So we knew each other socially very well. But it actually after he moved to Paris, it was in 1993, Three, I think, that he first, I started to work with him. And this was in the huge Crinoline show. And then I worked on Sarah Schlumberger's show. Um, and I, I did actually count up how many shows we've done. But, um, you know, I've run out of fingers, really, um, <laughs> to calculate. But at Galliano, we were doing a huge amount. And at, at Dior, we were doing a huge amount, mm-hmm. too. And every show, apart from two that I worked on, had hats in. Um, so it was a great adventure, really pushing you to the design limits and technical limits uh, of how to make this giant thing on somebody's head and make them look as though they ruled the world and it's completely easy at the same time. Um, but that particular one with the armour, because I make constructed objects, John had said to me about a month beforehand, you know, we're thinking of doing a show and there's a lot of hats in it, but there's also armour. Do you think you can make the armour? And I said, oh, yes, of course, John. <laughs> no problem. And But I didn't realise how much it was going to be and how complicated. So, of course, I was working with the Dior Ocouture Atelier mm-hmm. and they were, we worked on the toiles together, on the prototypes uh, for the clothing. And then I was starting to put them into practice. But actually, some of the armour was made in rubber, Mm-hmm. Some of it was beaten out of metal, like by a real armor maker. Uh, and some of it was made out of plastic, which was then uh, gold plated or silver plated. And I do, I do remember one particular because there was one with huge fins on the shoulder. And John would always say, oh, look, here's Stephen Jones coming in with Sydney Opera House. Because, <laughs> of course, the prototype was white. Um, but about two weeks before the show, I, I did come into the studio. John was there with um, Stephen Robinson, his main assistant, mm. and Bill Gayton, who is his main pattern cutter and studio assistant. And the three of them were there having lunch. And I came, walked into the room and just burst into tears and said, I can't do it. I just can't do it. It's too much for me to do. It's too complicated. And, you know, Stephen and, uh, and Bill said... Stephen, don't worry, explain it to us. We'll see how we can work through it. We can get extra help for you. John, of course, said, I understand, very sorry, but you are going to get it done, aren't you? Which is why he's such a survivor. (laughs) Okay, last one um, of these guys, and then I have a couple little questions for you. Um, Tom Brown is more of a recent starting collaboration with him. And what's he is also another unique, his first women's collection here in Paris, um, that he just showed for me was one of the highlights of the last, the spring, summer 18 season for mm-hmm. me. But talk to me a little bit about collaborating with him. Well, I didn't know him at all. Mm. Um, but I knew Andrew Bolton, his partner, 
very well. I knew Andrew when he was at the V&A and we'd worked on many of the exhibitions at the Met together. And he, one day, Andrew phoned me up and he said, you know, Tom would be very interested in working with you to make create some hats. And this was for the men's show yes. about mm, five or six years ago. I can't remember exactly when. Came to see me in London. We talked about it. And for a start, it's quite unusual because normally I go to designers. Huh. They rarely come to me. But he came to me and he came to me for four days. And we talked about things and I sketched and I had my workroom primed. And so we made twirls and prototypes as we went along. And it was, oh my God, I've never had a relationship like this before. And still now when I'm working with Tom, it's very intimate. Uh, I mean, it's a real communication of ideas and we talk about things because his shows even though sometimes he he says oh they're not about the big concept they are about the big concept they're absolutely about, about the, the big, big concept. concept so we're talking about the concept because often he will say well i don't really know about the hats until i've got the concept right and so i'll say well i can do that and we'll say and he will say that's absolutely what i don't want so he will make the concept of the collection move along by what we're doing with hats. So it's a very interesting way of working because Tom's clothes as well, you know, he's menswear. So most of his silhouettes are based within that menswear thing. So the hats can push it in one direction or the other direction. And also a hat is quite a good sort of flippant and demonstrative accessory to balance the formality of tailoring mm. um, and I think that's why it works but I, th- I think that show that we saw that we saw this time was a very unique show I think if you're going to do something wild and extraordinary to make it work in the world of Paris fashion it has to be beautifully made and this also was the extraordinary thing about his show yes the wear giant platforms but they were made on ebony and it was inlaid with bone Mm-hmm. And that level of care and investment and commitment and technique of energy and of money and of dedication is very unusual. Yeah, you don't see that every corner on every corner. No. Um, and I know he wanted to come in blazing with big guns to Paris. Oh, he did. But that he was, did. He totally did. And on the last day. And it was quite extraordinary because... First show in the morning was Louis Vuitton Mm -hmm. with LVMH backing and Nicolas Gesquia and, you know, extraordinary, talented designer and hugely powerful financially. And then there was Miu Miu Mm -hmm. and with Prada behind her, Amucha Prada, who one of the great geniuses of our time, who everybody respects. Um, And then there was little Tom Brown at the end. (laughs) And so he was competing absolutely head on. I mean, I think that fact he was an Olympic swimmer. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I think it helps. I, <laughs> I think, think it helps. helps. Yeah. Can anyone wear a hat? Absolutely. You just have to find the right one. Any rules about wearing a hat? Any kind of like things you need to know? If you're buying a hat, try on as many different hats as you possibly can. Because most people tend to think of a hat as being a thing with a big brim and with flowers on it. Well, no, maybe it's a baseball cap or maybe it's a beret or maybe it's a beanie or maybe it's a, a turban or maybe the hats can be so many different things um, and you need, really need to try all of them um, and if you're going to buy so take a hand mirror with you as well because remember people won't only be looking at you from the front but they'll be looking at you from the sides and the back as well 
Okay. That's a very good piece of advice. What do you think about hats today? I mean, we, we saw the resurgence of hats um, when uh, Hedy Slimane brought out all kind of those witchy hats. You know, all of a sudden every, you know, 20-year-old had a big floppy hat on their head in a way that hadn't been happening even six months before. And now with Maria Grazia um, at Dior, it's everyone has a beret. So, you know, she really relaunched to a certain extent this idea of, of young women wearing berets. Do you feel we're having a hat renaissance uh, now, like, you know, day to day, not just a vent hat? Yes, I make big fancy jobs with flowers on and crocodiles sticking out of them and they light up and they've got dry ice in them. (laughs) But I love a jersey beanie too. Mm. Because in fact, what makes fashion sense is when it's worn every day. Yes, fashion can be about the fantasy, but we need to have, you need to have meat and potatoes. You've got to have the practicality as well as the effervescence. And somehow what makes fashion really sing is if you can combine the two. That's what makes fashion memorable because it's got to have practicality. But a hat is about making you dream. It's not about the real world. It's about who you want to be as opposed to necessarily who you are. Okay. We've talked about designers. Is there any amazing um, memory of a, of a time of working with a client or having your piece worn by a particular woman that really stands out for you, an experience that you had um, that isn't a fashion show, but really a personal experience with someone? I mean, I have to say, as I'm British, working with members of the royal family, working with the Princess of Wales, that was extraordinary to work with her. And that was very early on in my career and early on in her marriage, too. Mm-hmm. So she was, the, the without question, the most famous person in the world. Diana, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, she was Catherine Middleton, combined with Beyonce, combined with Venus Williams. Absolutely. I mean, she, it was extraordinary. But she was a very lovely, straightforward person who was a great hat wearer. When you say a great hat wearer, what does that mean? She looked at home in them. And they really suited her. Somehow, even though I just said a hat is a costume and it makes you dream who you are, but it, a hat on her made her feel royal as well. And she wore it with confidence, with aplomb, with grace. So that was one particular thing. I mean, and something which quite recently this summer, um, I did Pippa Middleton's Veil mm-hmm. um, for the almost royal wedding. And that was great too. Um, and it was very much about being things being very in the spotlight. But also you're there with a client and she's saying, well, the folds go over the face in that way. Can they go over that way? And arranging it and doing all. So you've got you know, thousands of the world press waiting outside, but it's just you and her and you're putting in a few hairpins in order to make the veil drape in a certain way, because I just happened to put it on in that way that morning. So those times are very precious too. Mm. But obviously when I'm working with somebody like Anna Piaggi or Dita Von Tees, who were real muses, that's something extremely special too, because they teach me. What have you learned from Dita? I mean, she could put a baseball cap on and turn it into the most fun, exciting thing you've ever seen. (laughs) She has that real ability um, because it is a costume. And also she normally leaves her hats on as opposed to taking them off. (laughs) (laughs) Because everything else disappears. Everything else comes (laughs) up, but the hat stays on. (laughs) Okay, I have um, what we call the five generic fashion questions. What is your most treasured piece? Um, Usually we say piece of clothing, but what is your most treasured hat? 
I have a little baby's hat made out of vinyl, which was given to me in about 1976, and it's got Las Vegas printed on it. And a friend of mine, Larry Williams, I really had not traveled the world at that point. And he said, Stephen, you're going to go around the world. And he gave me this hat with Las Vegas of, and somehow it's become a talisman, it's like a little talisman for me or a lucky charm for me. There's that one. And and my other favorite hat is one which I I curated an exhibition at the Victorian Albert Museum in 2009, which is called Hats Anthology by Stephen Jones. And it's the black beaded beret that I wore to that too. What is the one hat that every woman should invest in? A beret. Okay. Not because it's only this season, but also for this exhibition I was just talking about, I th- always thought the ultimate beret wearer was Marlene Dietrich. So we went to the film museum in Berlin and we asked them if we could borrow a beret. And they said, well, yes, but we have over a hundred berets from her wardrobe. We have everything from Mary Quant, a huh. wool one which had cost 50 cents, up to a Scaparelli beret which had been embroidered by Lesage. Hmm. And we took both. <laughs> Good for you. Who is your favorite designer, living or dead? I think for me, living, clothes-wise, clothes I would like, I I like to wear Mm -hmm. is probably Tom Brown. Okay. You know, it's fantastic. It's really solid tailoring. It gives you the shape that you don't have. (laughs) (laughs) He's a magician. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's why I love wearing Tom Brown. Um, Designer. Probably Scaparelli, because uh, I loved the hats that she made. Um, They were fun. They were expressive. They were hats for having a good time in. Okay. What is the one fashion trend that you will never follow? Well, I have followed it because I'm 200 years old and it really didn't work. Flared trousers. Because flared trousers work very well if you're tall. Mm -hmm. But if you're short, you just look as though you're having an argument with a tent. (laughs) Okay. No flared trousers for you. And then last question. What do you love most about fashion? That we're all born naked and the rest of it is drag. You know, we could all wear a t-shirt and jeans. Some people, we can wear a ball gown. You know, it's it's a fantastic expressive thing We, we can all do. No matter how much money you have or where you are, it can be your bit of personal expression. And in fact, often it works in an inverse way. People who don't have the means can express themselves through their appearance. Mm-hmm. So true. So yeah. true. Stephen, thank you so much for yeah. taking the time. I really appreciate it. It has been a delight. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. Yeah. We'll have to do a second yeah. podcast yeah. in the yeah. future. Okay. <laughs> thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Don't want to miss an episode of Fashion Your Seatbelt? No problem. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and click on the subscribe button. Then every new episode will drop into your feed automatically. No fuss, no muss. Fashion Your Seatbelt is made possible thanks to the wonderful people at Launchmetrics, the software company that is powering the fashion industry, and GPS Radar, the members-only website where leading fashion brands and media connect in style. I am a member of GPS Radar, and I can tell you, as a journalist, it has made my work life run much more smoothly. Believe me, I know. I'm Jessica Michaud.